Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. We're here with Michigan Medicine Doctor Molly Moravec and Aaron Elman to talk about fertility options for cancer patients. Molly is a reproductive endocrinologist and the director of the Fertility Preservation Program. She is currently conducting research in the long-term outcomes of cancer patients who underwent fertility preservation compared to those that did not. Aaron is the Fertility Preservation Coordinator at the Rogo Cancer Center and usually the first contact in the program. Welcome, Molly and Aaron. Can you explain what exactly is fertility preservation? Sure. So it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, it's our efforts to preserve a woman's fertility for the future. Um, that's often in the case of a cancer patient who's undergoing some sort of treatment uh, that may affect her fertility or a male cancer patient uh, who may have a treatment that affects his sperm. And the idea is if we can freeze eggs or freeze sperm prior to the damaging treatment, then maybe we give them more reproductive options in the future. So you kind of went into a little bit um, of some of the patients, but who, who really benefits from fertility preservation? I would say men and women of reproductive age. Um, obviously, there's some ages above which women could no longer benefit from fertility preservation, but certainly um, the vast majority of the patients we see in the program are cancer patients. Uh, but there is also patients with other disorders, whether it be neurological or rheumatological, um, who might need chemotherapy for their disorder that we also see in our program. Um, and then some women or men uh, need to preserve their fertility for social reasons, uh, and we can do that as well. Currently, what is the typical patient that you see um, on, a, on a daily basis? I mean, I would say our typical patient is uh, a young female cancer patient, uh, just because the process there is a little more complicated, so it, it requires them to spend more time with us. Um, usually, either their surgical oncologist or their medical oncologist has sent them to us because the patient has expressed interest in having children and they're worried what their, what their chemotherapy might do to it. So um, are most of the patients you see via physician referral, are they more self-referral because they're just not, not sure? How, how does your typical patient get to you and what would that patient look for in trying to find a fertility preservation program? So most come through Erin, so maybe I'll let her answer that. Okay. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. We do get referrals from physicians. Um, I'm based in the cancer center, so I can meet with patients during their clinic appointment to provide more information and kind of get the ball rolling to connect them to the specialists and services that are appropriate for them. And then also patients can contact us on their own if they have concerns. I have a direct phone number that patients can access um, to get connected to our programming, get things started that way too. So patients come in, obviously first to you, it sounds like, Aaron. What are some of the biggest questions you hear? I, I got to assume financial situation has to be a, a big one. Sure. Cost is a huge concern for many of our patients. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of good luck with insurances covering sperm banking or egg freezing. So we do work with resources to help patients make fertility preservation or reality um, to try to help with the cost of the services, with medications they might need. Um, part of my role is to help them 
navigate the process and also the financial piece to um, help get them the services that they need. What are some of those resources that uh, might be available for patients looking to do this? One of the biggest resources that we work with is the Livestrong program. So Livestrong helps patients with a cancer diagnosis who meet income criteria to obtain those services at a discounted rate. Um, and for our female patients, they also help provide medications for fertility preservation that can be extremely expensive without insurance coverage. As we talk about patients, what type of cancer patients do you see? Do you see more men? Do you see more women? Is it you know, primarily someone with breast cancer? What, what are the kind of patient makeup that, um, that you see in the program? I would say our patients are pretty evenly divided between male and female. We see a number of patients on the female side from our breast cancer clinic, um, also patients with blood cancers, and um, sarcoma is another big referral source. Um, And then on the male side, in addition to those groups, also testicular cancer patients are frequently referred to us. And I know sarcomas and there's a lot of childhood leukemias we hear about. Would you... your patients that come in off of that, are they patients that had already had cancer as a childhood or as a child, or are they, um, you know, maybe newly diagnosed uh, patients in their young adults? I think that brings up a really good point. I would say the majority of our patients are newly diagnosed uh, and looking to preserve fertility before treatment, which is the most effective way to do things. That said, we're seeing an increase in childhood cancer survivors who either were too young or too overwhelmed at the time of their diagnosis to even really ask about fertility or understand what was happening to their fertility and are now curious about their fertility potential. And the interesting thing about that group is that even some of them who have return of ovarian function, it may not be long-term. And so there is an opportunity for us to intervene in some of these cases. Uh, We do have a group of, of teenage girls who survived cancer at a young age, who are now uh, freezing their eggs in their teenage years to use in their 20s or 30s. How do you have that conversation with a teenage teenager, whether it's a, a male or female? Because I know that you know, boys who have, have um, blood cancers are also um, would-be candidates. How, how do you have that conversation either with them or their parents about thinking about fertility preservation at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, it's awkward. Uh, There's no way around that. But I think there's so many ranges of maturity in these kids. And I think having gone through something like that and survived something like that makes a lot of these kids a little more medically savvy, a little more comfortable talking about their bodies. You know, in some cases, we have to kick the parents out of the room so that we can get a real answer from the child. Um, In other cases, they've already discussed this at home, and it's a very open, honest conversation. You know, I think something that I've had to learn is using uh, less technical terms with that with that group and maybe making more jokes about Mm -hmm. bodily functions. um, And then that usually breaks the ice for us. And I think most of the time, no matter how awkward the conversation is, by the end, the response is that the patients and families are glad to have had the conversation yeah. rather than to have not known. So when we're, when you're talking with the patients, uh, whether they're teenagers, their parents, or they're young adults, or even adults in their you know uh, mid to late 20s, early 30s, how do you explain to them the entire process and what to expect through this process? Sure. So it's very different for men and women. Um, I'll let Erin maybe talk about the process for men. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. So for our male patients, we give them some education about how their potential treatment plan may impact their fertility. And patients who are interested in sperm banking prior to their treatment can um, set up an appointment with us. They come to our lab at the Center for Reproductive Medicine and provide a semen sample. Samples are provided through masturbation at our lab and are then analyzed and frozen. So the patient receives information usually that same day about the results of their semen analysis and guidance about how that sample could be used in the future to create a family. And then from the female side of things, if we see a patient before she starts treatment, she actually has a few options. Uh, One of those options is a medical treatment um, with something called a GnRH agonist that sort of helps quiet her ovaries, almost like when she was prepubertal or postmenopausal. The thought being that if chemotherapy and radiation attack rapidly dividing cells, if we can make the ovaries quiet, maybe they won't be as susceptible to the chemotherapy. Another option is egg or embryo freezing, which is a much more involved process. Um, It does require delaying chemo for about two to three weeks because a woman has to undergo um, stimulation of the ovaries so that we can get as many eggs as we possibly can to either then freeze the eggs or create the embryos. And then a third option is an experimental option that is not currently offered at the University of Michigan, um, but we can certainly make referrals to other institutions, and that's actually taking out all or part of the ovary and freezing the ovary for future use. Um, Both sperm and eggs and embryos, as far as we know, can be frozen indefinitely. So even if we freeze a 13-year-old's eggs, if she decides she doesn't want kids till she's 40, it's just as good at 40 as it would have been at 25. What would someone look for if they're looking to for fertility preservation or uh, any kind of infertility help? What kind of provider or program should they be looking for? Sure. So I'll start with infertility, maybe because that one's easier. Um, If you're just looking for infertility treatment, I think you just want a clinic that has a long track record, that has good success, that has other resources available to you, such as social workers or financial counselors, because the fertility journey is stressful and long. And so if you have a single practitioner with no other support around them, um, I think that makes it more difficult for patients. From a fertility preservation standpoint, though, I think you need even more. Uh, When I first came to the institution, it was very important to me that we created the coordinator role, which is what Erin fulfills, because there are so many moving parts for these cancer patients. You know, they're figuring out imaging studies and chemotherapy appointments and maybe radiation and surgery, and now we're throwing fertility in the mix as well, and it's just too much for a patient to handle and keep track of all of that. And so Erin basically serves both as an assistant to the patients, but also as a liaison between oncology and surgery and uh, reproductive endocrinology, because there's just too many moving parts for us to put all of that in the patient's lab. So I know in in various different areas uh, here at the Rogue Cancer Center, as well as other cancer centers around the country, they have patient navigators. So in essence, you're basically a patient navigator for fertility preservation. Yeah. And I think when it comes to fertility preservation, one of the most important things is to get patients through fertility preservation as quickly as possible because we don't want to delay their cancer treatment um, any longer than we have to. So being able to provide that coordination to avoid those delays um, is helpful to the patients and also to the providers who want to get that treatment started as soon as possible. You're the hub to the spoke of their treatment. Yes, I, I hope so. That's the goal. 
So I know I just referred to you as as the hub to the spoke. You know, what type of areas uh, make up those spokes? What what are the? I know we talked about. You know, there's uh, there's radio radiographs, there's surgery, there's different things. But who makes really makes up this this team that the the patients are involved with? I mean, I think our program is a beautiful example of how different departments can come together and do the best thing for the patient. And so um, certainly when you're talking about egg freezing or sperm freezing, that requires reproductive professionals. And so the women uh, come through the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. The men, we have urologists who help us interpret semen analyses or help counsel the patients about their risk. And then obviously all the patient or all the providers in the patient's cancer team as well. And so I think Maybe the easiest way to describe it would be a breast cancer patient who has come in, she's had uh, cancer confirmed on biopsy, and so the surgical oncologist has sent her to me. Maybe she hasn't had surgery yet, so she doesn't know yet whether or not she's even going to need chemotherapy. Uh, And so this requires coordination between surgical oncology and when they're going to do that surgery, medical oncology and um, what chemotherapy she will need, if any, and then often radiation therapy is involved as well. And so those right there are possibly four different departments that are participating in this patient's care. So you mentioned that in your example about, you know, the patient comes in, sees the oncologist or the surgical oncologist, um, and then gets referred to you. Is that a typical way that that a patient comes to you or, or when does a patient normally come to you when they start thinking about fertility preservation? I think we're very fortunate that the majority of our patients do see us before they start treatment. And I think a lot of that is to the credit of Erin and her relationship with the cancer center and those physicians having a quick contact at the time of diagnosis or at the time of initial consultation. Um, I really try to stress to our oncologists that the earlier a patient gets to us, the more options they have. We certainly do see patients after they've started treatment. Unfortunately, a lot of options are off the table once treatment has started. That said, some patients just want to know what's going to happen. They just want counseling about what this is going to do. And so we're very happy to see those patients and at least provide that counseling. It's probably best for patients if they are of a childbearing age um, and they've been diagnosed with cancer that they should probably at least seek out some information before the treatment starts. Absolutely. We've talked about kind of right now where things are for a patient when they come in and, and what to expect. Are there any is there any research or clinical trials that are, are happening or just even research in general of how um, fertility preservation can uh, be advanced uh, moving forward? Yeah, I think there's a few areas that people are interested in. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, there's still ongoing convincing that needs to be done that we're not hurting patients by delaying their chemotherapy by a couple weeks. And so um, a lot of research is dedicated to showing equivalent outcomes between patients who did or didn't pursue fertility preservation. Another big area of research is that ovarian tissue freezing that I said, um, because we're not still 100% sure of the best way to use that tissue. Uh, Right now, most commonly, the tissue is put back in the patient, but is it possible that we could just grow the eggs in the lab like we do uh, an IVF procedure and maybe create embryos in the lab and put one embryo back at a time, uh, therefore not requiring another surgery? And so there's a lot of research uh, in that area as well. Two other areas, I think, are... uh, both under the category of defining risk. And so right now when a patient comes into us, we counsel uh, her that 
the risk of chemotherapy to her depends on which chemotherapy it is, how much she gets in total, how old she is, and what her ovarian reserve or how many eggs she has even before she starts is. But that often will lead to a risk percentage. I might quote a woman a 30 to 70% risk of ovarian failure. And that's a very frustrating number for women because 30% is very different than 70%. And so I think uh, sort of in the era of personalized medicine, there's a lot of attention on us being able to better pinpoint who really needs fertility preservation and maybe who doesn't. Similarly, after cancer treatment, trying to be able to pinpoint when we need to intervene with fertility preservation before a woman runs out of her eggs. You know, as it relates to breast and ovarian cancers, uh, we hear a lot about people taking some steps because they've been diagnosed with having the BRCA uh, gene mutation of getting mastectomies even before they've had breast cancer or having uh, their ovaries removed before they've been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, is there anything along those lines of someone that maybe has been told that they have that gene but haven't gotten the disease yet um, to be thinking about or talking about as it relates to fertility preservation? Yeah, I think we've started seeing a lot more of those patients as well, uh, in part because genetic testing is getting so advanced, and also because we learned more about prophylactic surgeries to help prevent the cancer from ever happening in the first place. And understandably, a lot of these patients don't want to pass this risk on to their children. And so uh, we can test embryos uh, with something called pre-implantation genetic testing uh, for monogenic diseases is the full name. Uh, and basically, as long as we have the mutation report for that individual patient, we can then test her embryos that she would have to create um, uh, in our lab and help her prevent passing that gene on to her offspring. Well, I think this has been really informative and I really appreciate the time today. Um, if you were to leave our listeners with one key important information or fact, um, what would that be, Molly? I think for me, it's not to be afraid to ask. You know, I think a patient might feel that fertility is a funny thing to ask about when they're facing chemotherapy. It might seem uh, small to them, but really the earlier the patient can get to me, the more options I have to provide them. And so if they're curious, they should ask and then let us take it from there. Don't worry about it being another burden on them. They just need to ask the question. Erin, what would your parting thoughts be? I think definitely echoing that statement, um, the sooner patients can contact us, the sooner providers can refer patients to us, the more we can help. And I think we've seen, you know, over the last couple of years in particular, significant growth in the number of patients who have been referred to us and the number of patients we've been able to help um, with fertility preservation. So looking forward to continuing that growth and helping more patients with this very important topic. Great. Well, thank you both very much today, and um, again, great information. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening, and tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter@med.umich.edu, or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org. Mm-hmm.